0: We were talking with this couple and I asked them for, um, a gift of a quarter of a million dollars for a particular project. And as I worded it, and we had agreed on this before that they were one of five, uh, people that, uh, we wanted to make this, this request of. immediately, the wife began doing the mental calculation. She said, yeah, we were actually really thinking about, about an amount like that, about 50,000. So she calculated that the 250 was for the group of five and not the ask for just them. And then I have to kind of walk it back and it was very awkward. Um, so in the end, 50,000, a wonderful gift. I mean, very grateful for it. Right. But the lesson there is when you're making an ask, you're making it to one person or one couple.
1: Yeah. That's a, uh, A $200,000 lesson right there. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to One Visit Away with your host, Kevin Fitzpatrick. This show focuses on true stories of philanthropy in order to understand what it takes to succeed in major gift fundraising. Listen to these stories and you'll realize you're just one visit away from a transformational experience for your benefactors and your organization. In this week's episode, we hear from Ellen Rossini. Ellen is a longtime Dallas-area fundraiser, writer, and editor. A graduate of Arizona State University's Cronkite School of Journalism, she embarked on a newspaper career as a full-time reporter and editor, and later freelance writing for newspapers, magazines, and books, before finding her way into nonprofit leadership. Ellen worked in programs and development for the Diocese of Dallas's pro-life ministry, where she was the Director of Development for 10 years. From there, she joined the Major Gifts Office of the University of Dallas, where she worked as a Senior Advancement Officer and then Director of Major Gifts. Ellen is delighted to bring her fundraising knowledge and enthusiasm to a variety of nonprofit agencies as a consultant for mission advancement professionals. Ellen and her husband, Carl, have been married for 35 years and are blessed with four young adult children, two daughters-in-law, and a baby grandson. They are members of St. Mark the Evangelist Parish in Plano, where they teach fifth grade faith formation. Ellen also serves on the board of Dawn of Mercy, a new nonprofit organization assisting victims of sexual abuse. I hope you enjoy this wonderful conversation with Ellen Rossini. Well, thanks so much for being on One Visit Away, Ellen.
0: You're welcome. This is a pleasure.
1: Yeah, so you're you're in your new office over at MAP, Mission Advancement Professionals. Could you give us just a little bit of history of how you wound up here and your your whole career and development condensed to just a couple minutes to give us an idea?
0: I love it. Well, my development career is actually my third career. So I started in journalism. And so at some point, we can talk about how that was actually a great foundation for the work that I did in fundraising. Uh, but I did have a a 20 year career in, in, fundraising, um, starting with a small grassroots organization, growing that, uh, income for that organization and growing leadership there. And then coming over to the, to higher education and fundraising at the university level. And at that point in my career, really focusing on major gifts. And I just enjoyed the whole, um, just the whole scene of fundraising and really um, transformational giving, transformational not just for the organization and institution and the lives that are served, but for the for the donor, for the benefactor. And that is, in fact, very much the mission of Mission Advancement is to try to provide those experiences for our clients who are nonprofits doing wonderful work, primarily in faith-based social service and private schools. Um, so... Uh, it was an opportunity to step into consulting from fundraising to share what I've learned and bring that to a variety of really wonderful nonprofits, not just in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but anywhere that um, that our clients are.
1: You've prepared some stories uh, when you came here. Is there a is there a story that you can think of that's you know, maybe your favorite visit that you've ever been on in your career or just kind of what what you think of when you think of like, that is what I love about this career.
0: That's a great question. There've been so many. And I was thinking most recently of some of the uh, the university uh, major gifts conversations I had because I have just met so many very interesting people and a lot of people that were not at all like me. And so I was thinking about uh, a couple and the the gentleman was the alum and he had reached out and was asking some very pointed questions. He wanted to see the nine nineties. He wanted to know how much money the president was making, and he wanted to uh, really, you know, ask a, a lot of uh, questions that made it seem that he he would be kind of a tougher customer to have the the giving conversation with. He could just tell that he he had a lot of thoughts. He was a philosophy major at the University of Dallas and was very intelligent. They had really been thinking about their estate plans because sadly they had come through a situation where there was an estate they were involved with that was uh, disputed. There were a lot of hard feelings, there were difficulties around it and they wanted to avoid all that. But he wasn't just going to easily give to his alma mater, though he really was deeply grateful for his education. So, just got to know them. They had a rescue dog. We had a lot of great conversations around that because I'm an animal lover too. And I just, you know, shared about all the different professors that he knew some of whom were still at the university, others who were not. And just, I just listened. He had great stories and I had Googled him. He he kind of wanted me to because he had been written about in the paper and anyway it was it was just really fun, and he was a little bit elusive, but in the end they made an uh, an enormous uh you know estate intention for the university so I think what I enjoyed about that cousin was that it it had its challenges and it had its mystery and yet a great outcome and I'm very fond of this couple
1: well, wow, that's amazing so tell me about did he go into any uh, explanation of why he cared about um, the 990s or the president's salary because people have it's funny how some benefactors just like do not care at all and I, i would say most people who want to give a gift they don't care about any of that stuff because they care about the lives transformed lives saved and uh, 990s are elusive and they can be confusing and they do not tell the whole story. Um, and so it's it's funny how some benefactors don't care at all. Some care a lot. And the ones that care a lot care for different reasons. So did this guy uh, share with you why he wanted to know or what his thoughts were after he saw that information?
0: You know, you do find this sometimes in higher ed, Kevin, that uh, some people think and they will say, I don't want to give where they don't really need my money. You know, they have this perception that if people are at, you know, uh, earning very high salaries, that, yeah, they're taken care of, they're doing okay. So it was as simple as that. He just, he wanted it to be needed. And it wasn't clear right away what would be the most significant uh, way for him to support the school for them as a couple especially because she didn't graduate from UD. But um, it turned out that they were really excited about the Rome semester, the chance for students to study abroad. And he recalled that that was one of the more meaningful experiences he had as well. So that all came about just really through conversation, Kevin, because we we could have gone off in the direction of uh, the philosophy department. And in fact, I, I brought him a book and I didn't know. I thought, I, I, I want to bring him something from the department. And so I brought a book that was published and it turned out that was it was written by his favorite teacher. And I didn't have any way of knowing that ahead of time. So that was kind of cool.
1: That's so cool. This guy wanted to see the 990, which is great. Like Anytime somebody asks you for your 990, send it over. Um, can you think of... A time that someone ever saw a nine ninety for your organization, for an organization you were working for, and they decided not to give because of it, or um, related to that, w- was it really like the 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 thing that made them give the gift? Like somebody was, you know, well, I'm I'm hearing about the University of Dallas, <laughs> and it seems interesting. You know, I'm super excited about this, but. I'm not really sure I want to give a gift or not. Can you send me the 990? And then they get the 990, and something on the 990 just said, <laughs> This is the place I'm gonna give 10 million dollars to. Uh,
0: no, no, that's it's interesting how you kind of see that question, Kevin, <laughs> because really it was just checking the box, you know. It was making sure that, you know, he had a suspicion or or he was just wondering, um, what 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 are the the numbers around the university right now, you know, and um he he didn't want to throw away a gift because it was significant for him.
1: Wow. Okay, what about um you might have some other ones prepared, but do you have a particularly funny visit you can think of or just something funny that happened during a visit?
0: Oh, yes, I've got a couple of those. One I was traveling. <laughs> so if anything's going to happen that's imperfect, it's going to be while I'm on the road because you're just out of, the, out of your element. You're trying to cram in a lot of activity in a short period of time and make the most out of that trip. And I don't have the best sense of direction and Google Maps has saved me. <laughs> but there are also a lot of unknowns, you know, between airports and rental cars and all of that. Well, I decided I would plan two two visits back to back at the same restaurant in Beverly Hills. And it was actually a very casual place, but it was very close to one of the one of the benefactors. And so we had... Um, an amazing lunch. We had a wonderful conversation, absolutely connected. It turned out he went to school with my brother-in-law and they were friends in high school. And that was amazing. And it never even occurred to me to ask him about that. (laughs) But but it came up, you know, like, oh, Beverly Hills. Yeah, my brother-in-law grew up there. I don't know, you know, I just didn't think of it. So that was amazing. Um so that was great. And then I had my second appointment and a woman came in and it was, we were at a fish place and she just about passed out. She said, "This place smells horrible. <laughs> 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 Gotta get out of here. <laughs> so, oh, man. so we walked to a nearby coffee shop and, we sit outside, and all is well, but <laughs> oh, man. oh man, so no note self, no note food restaurants
1: <laughs> so I thought that that uh the direction I thought that the story was going was since you booked them back to back, they were gonna like see each other and wind up being you know arch nemesis or something. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> you met with her like
0: well, but that's really <laughs> no good. way
1: will i ever talk to you
0: oh, that's funny that's a good point though is that um these visits tend to go a long time you know when you when people really they just enjoy talking about their lives and yeah yeah and the things that bring you together they love it so you have to allow plenty of time because that would have been awkward yeah if i'd had to be yeah. in the door oh no she's coming in and i'm not finished with him that would have been awkward yeah
1: <laughs> but I'm glad you, uh, glad you pulled both of those off and got away from the fish smell. <laughs>
0: uh, that's so funny. I was thinking again about another travel uh, visit. So we were in Houston and there was going to be a reception. And I was the, sometimes, you know, you'll do things where you're, you're taking the appointments as the gift officer, but you're also kind of the staff person on the event, you know, and my favorite, least favorite thing about our, our business is schlepping hate schlepping stuff. <laughs> I'm not that strong, you know. And then you've got kind of to drag it <laughs> around. I'm trying to be all yeah. nicely dressed like and drag stuff along. Anyway, so I'm yeah. schlepping back and forth to to the one shell building in Houston. So huge building takes up a city block. I um, get everything set up for the reception. Then I'm going to meet a couple for dinner, and it's just down the street. I almost could have walked, but it was raining, and I did have an umbrella. But it was raining really hard. I wasn't really able to keep that dry. And I'm standing out on Smith Street, which is one side of the Shell building. But I turn around and I see on the building, it says Louisiana. On the building. So I'm calling the Uber driver saying (laughs) Louisiana. And so he comes, obviously, to the other side, which was Louisiana Street. And he said, I'm here. And I said, "Uh, so am I. Uh, he said, okay, we're steering landmarks. And I'm like, to park across the street? I don't know what he was looking at. I'm like, oh, this isn't working. And so I just canceled it. And I called another driver. And he was having trouble too. And I'm getting wet. And finally he figured out, oh, yeah, you're on the other side. So we arrange. We meet. Meantime, I'm talking to the couple, apologizing profusely. They were so sweet. I finally get there. They've already eaten. They it was so nice. They said, please order something. I did. They picked it up. We had a lovely conversation. They were so kind. And then they were coming to the reception too. So they drove the three of us there. And then I'm not early, but it's okay. I'm not terribly late. But I go into the ladies' room to just kind of freshen my lipstick. And you don't understand this, Kevin, because you're a man. But Houston weather and this hair, it <laughs> exploded with the rain and the, even though I had an umbrella, the, the humidity. I looked like a circus clown. My hair, all <laughs> a ball of frizz. I was mortified. I, if I'd had a scarf, I would have put it on. I thought, I can't believe I have to go to the reception like this. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> and I'd had toyed with the idea of maybe just inserting myself, making some introductions, and I thought, oh no, I can't even. Can't even get in front of a crowd.
1: <laughs> oh, that is so funny. Oh man, yeah, the Houston is just the the climate is disgusting. It's uh, I mean, growing up in New Orleans, I lived with it, but it's just like every time I go there, it's, you get off the plane and you step outside, and it's just, ugh, oh, it's horrible. The
0: people are so <laughs> so nice. I think because they just don't have the luxury of beautiful. Paradise weather. I don't know. They're they're so great. So I one of my trips to Houston was the day before Hurricane Harvey, and and so it was coming. They knew it, you know. Um, but when is it going to hit land? So I checked with all my appointments. I said I'll still come if if you if you want to see me, we can reschedule. But I'm I'm still planning to come. They said it's fine. Just come. So I had all my appointments. In fact, they all got moved up early because. People were just going home and kind of batting down the hatchet, right? So I, uh, I, I was going to spend the night and leave Saturday morning. And I thought, you know, maybe I will just head back home after all. And all the, <laughs> the wonderful benefactors were saying, be safe. And I'm like, yeah, uh, I'm going <laughs> to be safe because I'm heading worth the belt. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you put in my car and you can be safe too.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: oh, and that is so funny. For
0: so sure enough, it hit, it hit big. Um, but thanks be to God. Those people I met with, none of them had flooding. I was very relieved. I was very concerned. Um, but they all did fine.
1: Yeah, it's funny how... Uh, so I'm going to relate this to coronavirus a little bit um, just to, you know, people our tendency is always to be well for most of us, I think is to always be a little bit pessimistic. Um, like you need to, I think it's much more in our nature to, uh, move towards pessimism and look at excuses and yeah, you know, the economy's having a rough time, so people aren't going to give. And so I, this brings me back to, uh, hurricane Harvey in my example, uh, I was, so I had just, Laura and I, we'd just gone with two of our friends up to Colorado for a little vacation. We were staying at my, I have some relatives that have a cabin up there. And, and the friends I was with, they had family in Houston. And this, and we were there when Harvey hit. So we were oh, in Colorado no. when you were driving back to Dallas. <laughs> and, and I was in the process of, I had just extended a job offer to someone who would be, a development officer at heroic media. And she declined the offer uh, in part because she, and part of her responsibility was going to be working primarily with people in Houston. right? And she was worried that like, there's going to be all this, uh, you know, long-term uh, you know, chaos and financial hardship that would make mm-hmm. it difficult for people to give. And, and, you know, people are... And obviously, that did not happen. Right. Um, Houston is... Uh, no, of course. Houston was hit hard by Harvey. I, Our family lost everything in Hurricane Katrina. I completely... I'm not downplaying that at all. But uh, Houstonians are not going around the philanthropists uh, saying, you know, in 2020, we can't give anything to organizations because we're solely focused on rebuilding the city. That's just not the case. No, And I think people... People have that tendency, have that same fear right now, but on a national and worldwide stage with coronavirus. And right before we got on the call, Ellen, you were talking a little bit about you know, how y'all are helping your clients through this. So I'll leave it kind of open-ended, but could you share a little bit about what y'all's approach is with your clients and give some encouragement to people out there who are worried?
0: Oh, sure. Absolutely. Well, as I told you, the my very first day on the job was the first day that Dallas County went into COVID-19 lockdown. So... <laughs>
1: <laughs> what a great hire! Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah. Not uh, only, Man, only everything
1: changed as as soon as Ellen got here, <laughs> not in the way that you hope. I know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I have to say that everybody in this company, we just we just got to work. We got busy, and one of the the first messages that we were getting out, in all sincerity, is that. Yes, we don't know what this is going to look like in the philanthropic world, but we do know that philanthropy has been on the rise since, you know, if you just track it from the 60s, and even during times of general financial crisis, such as the housing bubble in 2007, 2008, individual giving did not go down. There was a slight dip in giving, about 4%, and that was foundation giving. So it, it, giving did not go down in during 9-11. Uh, so people will give to the causes they care about. And our counsel was across the board to clients and just those in the industry, keep talking to your donors, find out how they're doing, use this as an opportunity to build the relationship and grow the relationship in all sincerity and you'll find that your benefactors are going to ask you well how are you doing and we saw with many of our clients they really stepped in to make sure that the people that they serve were cared for during especially those early weeks when there was just such massive unemployment and things hadn't really kind of come together to help um, mitigate some of that so and it continues so it's it's too soon i think kevin for people to look at some of the numbers and conclude oh no covid-19 has really hurt the nonprofit world it's too soon and i have every confidence that you know just from what i've seen in our you know microcosm here that the good-hearted benefactors who, you know, many of them, they, their income is sheltered. They have a lot of different sources. Um, you might say, see, look at one industry and think, oh, all the benefactors in that industry are really suffering. Not necessarily. You know, I just don't counsel people to make assumptions to the negative, as you point out. Um, that you might have those conversations where you make a very sincere and well-thought-through ask, and the person says, right now, the answer is no because of... But don't assume and hold back from those conversations.
1: Yeah, that's great. And I think one. So what you mentioned about the four percent dip in the housing crisis, um, you said that that those primarily from foundations. And I haven't studied this at all. But Mm -hmm. my first thought is, well, of course that's going to happen in foundations because anytime there's a decrease Mm -hmm. in the stock market, that's going to affect foundations.
0: Right, right. They are more sensitive to that.
1: Yes. I mean, they're entirely dependent upon uh, income created by investments, but in the stock market. Uh, But for most people who are giving away money, most people, I'm not talking about Mm -hmm. people who are sitting on, you know, $500 million in net worth and a lot of that's in investments. But like a lot of people who are going to be giving to your, most of the people listening to this, they might be getting a 10,000, 25,000, $50,000 gift, something like that. Mm-hmm. That's coming out of their income. And many people aren't, they haven't lost their income. Right. And so it, does, that's right. it doesn't matter that your stock portfolio took a 20% hit if you've still got $200,000 coming in a month uh, from your job that produces your your monthly income. So, yeah, I mean for for so many people like we were talking before we got on, if people still have their income, they might be worried about losing their income mm-hmm. or they might have been worried about losing their income. So they they started saving cash and decreasing expenses. Right. And so a lot of people are at a point now where they're not worried about losing their job. They've seen things stabilize a little bit. Yep. And now they have more cash on hand than they ever have. And like like you were mm-hmm. saying beforehand, uh people want to be generous and they they see they're in a good position and yep. they see other people are not in a good position. That's right. And so they want to help. So yeah, I, I love that. Um and yeah, great advice.
0: Sure, sure.
1: So we've uh we may have exhausted coronavirus for the day <laughs> but any uh, I'm, I'm sure you've got so many so many other stories anything anything come to mind that you'd like to share or
0: well sure sure you know I was thinking about um, you know how I got into fundraising and when I was a child I never would have thought of doing anything close to sales uh, because mm-hmm. it it was terrifying to me I was shy and I was in the Girl Scouts and all Girl Scouts sell the cookies. And I hated it. (laughs) I was traumatic because somehow I didn't realize that everybody loves Girl Scout cookies. They're really not that hard to sell. (laughs) But I was thinking about you know what what made me so fearful, and it's some of the same things that make uh, people today say to me, "How in the world can you ask people for money?" I just oh, I could never do that. Um, you know, and it's the idea that, that I have no right to ask, you know, um, and yet we ask for permission to ask. Actually, I'm sure you do a lot of that yourself, Kevin. Um, and so you do have a right because you, you say, Hey, I'd like to bring you a proposal. I'd like to talk with you more about how you can help. You're getting permission. Yeah. Um, or they might think, you know, I'm intruding on people's time. I'm inconveniencing them. Well, at most it's a minor inconvenience, you know, it's not a big intrusion.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah you didn't uh, crash your car into the living room. Uh. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, sometimes I think that it's about putting pressure on people. Um, we don't do that. It's, you know, it's, it's not a pressure sales conversation at all. Uh, there's always, you know, the, the opportunity to to say no, to ask questions to give less than what's asked it's uh it isn't at all high pressure um but what's the big thing they might say no and that would be embarrassing to me and it would be a rejection and yet it isn't personal um and it doesn't have to be embarrassing it's just it's just information um and and it's learning so um what i would have missed Kevin, if I had kind of held on to more of that, uh, you know, that child-based fear is the opportunity to really meet some amazing people, just the most incredible people I've had the, the privilege to know simply because they have generous hearts and beautiful stories and they want to make the world a better place. And I'm simply opening the door. I'm such a small player in it. And, and yet it's a beautiful role. And I wouldn't trade it. Um, another thing, it, it just got me to be a more cheerful person because I smile all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've always been that way, Kevin. But I remember I wanted to thank one of my, my first boss in nonprofit, Karen Garnett, um, because she she gave me the opportunity to really be more positive and optimistic simply because of, of the work that I, I got to do, raising money for yeah. the organization.
1: Yeah, so w- one thing I want to comment on that I thought was really important what you said, you know, it's not a high pressure sort of thing. And man, co- co- like looking at sales situations after being uh, in fundraising for a little while now it uh and you know like our focus uh there are <laughs> there are some fundraisers that are high pressure people yeah. and everyone hates them <laughs> and they don't do well in the long run but the right approach where you're there to serve the benefactor that's right uh in their philanthropy is it's so freeing and so like you know i, I was thinking about when you're talking about high pressure i was thinking about when i bought uh, my, my, uh, my car that I drive after my, my college car, uh, broke down. Um, I, I went to buy this car and I looked several different places and one of the, the used car dealerships I went to, man, the, uh, the high pressure techniques they were using to try to force me into a, a buying decision was just so revolting. And it was like, I will never, I will never do business with you. Uh, And I told them that because it's just it's just disgusting how like you're not going to I am the worst. There might be some people that could and there definitely are, which makes me even angrier that people they try to intimidate them into buying something to like you're just being such a jerk to people who might not feel like they're in a position to say no to a bully. And man, I, I, I hate that so much. And so, and so I compare that to, so like one of the things this person was doing was I was there and I was, I just wanted to look at cars. I take a long, if I'm going to spend, you know, a lot of money, it's going to take me a long time to make a decision. And so I just wanted to look at a couple different things And so I'm looking at this one car and they bring in, you know, the, the manager, whoever, and he's like, so, so why aren't you buying the car? Uh." And I was like, well, I am not going to buy a car today. And also I don't make decisions without my wife and I, uh, you know, agreeing on it. And he's like, well, where's your wife right now? Let's get her on the phone. Let's get her on the phone right now. And we can, I was like, no, but you know, we, that's the high pressure thing compared to, working as a development person that's there to serve the benefactor right you might you might be having a discussion with someone about the mission of your organization Mm -hmm. and they tell you something like hey well kevin i love the work that y'all are doing um we don't make any decision any decisions on giving uh except as a couple right and so and and so if someone tells us that we say wow, like, that's, I think that's a great policy. How do you think it's best for us to bring your spouse into this conversation? Yeah. So y'all can make a decision that you're happy about?
0: Right, right. Like, Again, the permission, but, uh, the permission based. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: And it's just like, that's how we approach this. Um, we're cool. there to serve them. And it completely changes the versus imagine if you or I were in someone's office and they're like, well, you know, we don't make any decisions. Uh, I don't make any giving decisions without my spouse. <laughs> oh, well, where is she right now? Like, call her. Call her. What's her phone number? Dial it now. Like,
0: <laughs> That would fail so badly. That's not even funny. <laughs> But that's the thing that's, you know, you're never going to coerce a gift from somebody. You're not going to talk somebody into giving because it's always an intangible. And it's and it just I guess I could say it doesn't necessarily need to come from the heart. People can have different motivations for supporting a nonprofit that, you know, I'll grant you that. But um, it's not going to come as a result of us being. So so skillful and clever and promising things, um,
1: right? I all. use tactic seventy five from the Closer's Guide to Fundraising. <laughs> I just made that
0: <laughs> But what we do.
1: and then I tried to make him feel inadequate to force him into a giving
0: decision. <laughs> but we we do have in common with uh, with salespeople, and that's why I was telling you earlier. I like to get advice from my son who's in sales. Is that We've got to make the call. You know, there was a time when I, when I shared an office with my colleagues and they would hear me, especially making what I would call a cold call. Now, nobody was completely cold. They'd already been somebody who had at least given something to the university, but maybe it was a little, maybe it was a long time ago. It felt like a cold call to me. And I'd just be so embarrassed sometimes, not with the person, but my colleagues could hear me you know, fumble and be awkward sometimes. And so I said to my son, I said, oh, I just kind of want to work at home and do these calls. He said, oh, yeah, I crash and burn in front of my colleagues all the time. You just make the calls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he <had no> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I'll admit that my favorite part of the role, especially when I was focused on major gifts, was simply stewardship and developing the relationship and I you know I was so pleased to see that that led to um, you know deeper and more transformational gifts simply by you know walking that person along a path of engagement not just with me as the fundraiser but with other leaders at the university and the, and tying back to their experience maybe even other alumni and it's very very gratifying and and sometimes that's a piece that can be, Neglected in favor of the next new donor, and and that's a mistake. But uh, but but certainly you've got to make that first call before you can have the subsequent calls. Yeah. So
1: yeah, and and it's interesting, you know, that you said that about your preference is the stewardship part because we all have different things that are appealing to us the most, and um, and I think that comes down to the importance of having a, an effective team at your organization and, yeah. you know, doing different parts of the relationship. Cause for me, my favorite part is always like, I guess what you would describe as the hunt. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, it's like finding, finding the person, find out who they are, yeah. getting the visit yeah. scheduled. Um, and then going to see them the first time, like meeting someone for the first time is always what like gets me, pumped up but yeah it's like you said i don't especially the longer the longer i've been doing this because you were saying it's a mistake to always be chasing that the less i get to do that because it's just right. at a point now that th- there are so many people in our database that have been giving for a long time and they they it is best for them and the organization That our focus is on them, not on finding new people all the time. So it's something I get to do less and less of the longer uh, I've been at Heroic Media, but yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I understand that, though. There would always be a part of me that likes the prospecting. um, And supervisors would say, get back to your portfolio. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But it's hard, you know, because... Because both of us are, you know, we've worked with small teams, and there's more to be done than we have people to do. Um, so, so it's it's a challenge. That's where you just have to kind of, you know, just prioritize. I, I imagine some of the people who might be listening might be from very small shops. Maybe they're the only development person. And so, you know, of course, our, our consultant company would, you know, kind of work with them and walk through, you know, how to prioritize because you kind of, in a way, you have to do it all. But you, you you have to prioritize how much you do. I want to ask you, Kevin. How do you manage your time with regard to researching people? Do you find you get down that rabbit trail of gathering information about people before you make the call, or do you just like going in cold, knowing not? That yeah, about I like them? going
1: in. I prefer to go in completely blind <laughs> <laughs> for a variety of reasons. So I used to. I used to be all about like, man, I have to find out everything in the world that's ever been written about this person. And I, man, if <laughs> if they wrote a book, I better read their book. Right, right, I right. Call them. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, and we used to have uh a subscription to Wealth Engine, which you may be familiar with. It's you know, for those of you who don't know, it's a it's an online tool where you pay some sort of subscription you can search people by name and it'll give you all this information about them, (laughs) like you know uh, properties that they own estimated net worth some gifts they've given that might be public knowledge and i used to study that stuff all the time but now i just think for for the development person it's a made like for the major gift fundraiser i think it's a total distraction uh if you have some sort of research Team that can be a very effective tool to send, like, hey, uh, major gift officers, here are some people you should call and go see. But the reason I don't like doing that research is because if I so if I if I find out about somebody and then I learn all this stuff about them online, now it's like this really uneven playing field where i know Mm -hmm. like it's it's just weird it's It's like if you went on it's like if you went on a date with like a first (laughs) date with someone and you knew everything about them and then (laughs) and so, so now now that you know everything about them you don't have any reason to ask them questions or be interested in their life because you already know but if you go into it basically just knowing, hey, I think this person has some sort of affinity towards what we do and they might have some capacity. Now I go in there eyes wide open. I ask them good questions. I listen to what they say. I probe on those questions so I can find out more. And now if through those questions they reveal to me that they gave a million dollar gift to their alma mater, now that is I call fair game for me to use in determining capacity. But if I find out someone, so now if someone tells me, Hey, we give a million dollar gift to this organization, they are in some way, they wouldn't tell me that if they were, if they didn't want me to know it. That's right. And so, but if you learn that through online research, and then you just out of the blue ask them for a $200,000 gift. Like why in the world does Kevin think I have that kind of capacity or so? Yeah, I'm
0: they could ask, I don't they could like ask and then like you're on that. the spot. I think that's really an interesting yeah. point.
1: Yep. Yeah. 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 So I think, I think it's great for um, like, if you're an organization that has a research team or mm-hmm. we did a, uh, we did a wealth engine screening. It was like you run everyone in your database through this software and it'll, you know, give you some sort of report showing you like, these are the people in your database that we think have this kind of net worth that can be helpful to determine, you know, prioritizing who you're going to reach out to. But I don't study anything like that in depth anymore.
0: Right. And, and it can be misleading, you know? Um, Oh yeah.
1: (laughs) Yep. Oh yes. Yeah. I think, I think when I was like, when I just graduated from UD, I looked up my my own name, and I think it said I had like a, you know, net worth was in the range of two hundred fifty thousand to five hundred thousand dollars, and I was like, "Wow, that's not... <laughs> that would be nice."
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, exactly. If you if you have the staffing and the ability to use it, do so, but kind of with a grain of salt, because when I think about some of the largest gifts that I've helped bring into organizations, they were, they were well beyond what I would have expected from what those um, instruments were able to show me about those people. And I only was able to facilitate the larger gift because I got to know the person and was able to you know, open the door to the opportunity uh, at the organization that was going to be really deeply meaningful to them. And then that's when that, that stretch gift of, you know, six and seven figures, that's when those came about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I saw, I saw this thing recently. Uh, I saw it on LinkedIn. It was about how, you know, you need to get our software. So now you know how much to ask for the next time you ask for a gift. It's like, are you kidding me? Like (laughs) there is no software that can replace friendship. Um, and, and so I just think that's, those things are, are gimmicks in the, if you're using it to determine how much you should ask someone for in, in a major gift face to face, I'm sure there are softwares that can help. Obviously there are softwares that can help determine this person was giving you $25 a month. And for this period of time, now it's time to send them an email asking for a hundred dollars a month. Sure. But if you're talking like you're saying, you know, asking somebody for a hundred thousand dollar gift or a million dollar gift, there's no software that can, uh, can make that happen for you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You got to go old school.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Indeed. (laughs) Face to face.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: Any, any other stories that, uh, I'm trying to see. Oh, Oh, well here's what I wrote down here. Maybe this will jog your memory. Okay. Anything you can think of that you'd classify as like a, Biggest learning experience. Oh, that's right. From a visit.
0: Yes. Okay. So this might you might enjoy this. So, um, there was an alumni couple at the University of Dallas, and we went to go see them about an opportunity, and they knew that we were. I, I say we, the president of the university, and I were um, together on this trip, and so they knew that we were going to present a proposal to them. Um, so we met them at a restaurant, and the president and I had rehearsed how we were going to go about the ask. And he was kind of precise about it. He was actually going to leave the table and have me make the ask, but he ended up not leaving <laughs> <laughs> because he just wanted it to happen. and wanted to be there, but that's yeah, fine. Yeah. Those things, you know, it's good to have two people for accountability and so forth. Um, yeah. That you actually make the ask and you make the ask you plan to and all of that. Um, but I, I knew I had to be kind of nimble because I had not been on an ask with him. So, we were talking with this couple and I asked them for um, a gift of a quarter of a million dollars for a particular project. And as I worded it, and we had agreed on this before, that they were one of five uh, people that uh, we wanted to make this this request of. So these are both um, highly successful physicians. And so immediately the wife began doing the mental calculation. She said, yeah, we were actually really thinking about about an amount like that about 50,000 so she calculated that the 250 was for the group of five and not the ask just Ooh. them and the husband <laughs> and i locked eyes and we realized what's happening and then i have to kind of walk it back and it was very awkward um, Ooh. so in the end 50,000 a wonderful gift i mean very grateful for it right but yeah. the lesson there is when you're making an ask, you're making it to one person or one couple. And even though there's the whole uh, social capital piece that can come in to getting to know people, and sometimes there are projects where it's going to be a group of people going in on it, you have to be very careful and clear in the ask. It doesn't really matter in that conversation who else I might be asking for how much or when. What they needed to know was that we wanted to ask them to give two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and again, the awkwardness of it didn't necessarily mean that we lost out, but it didn't help. So that was that was a, a big learning moment.
1: Wow, that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, a two hundred thousand dollar lesson right there,
0: <laughs> uh, potentially. <laughs>
1: but yeah, I mean that's. Yeah, stuff like that happens all the time and it doesn't help. I mean, one of my one of my biggest pet peeves is when you're going on a visit with somebody else and then they don't do what they said they were going to do or they decide to do something, (laughs) you know, wing it. And uh, uh, which is just like, you know, it's so tricky. I mean, I'm not saying this is why there was the confusion, but, you know, someone saying this is how it's going to work. And the whole time I would imagine if I was in your situation, I would be thinking, when is he going to leave? When is he going to leave? Why hasn't he left? Does that mean he doesn't want like, is that the signal that we're not supposed to ask for a gift? Did something happen that I'm not aware of? And so, so now you're just so distracted thinking about all this stuff. Uh, Instead of just the, you know, the one, the one focus thing. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point, the making it just about them. And yeah, it, it doesn't matter that you're asking four other people to do something similar. That's
0: right. So
1: I'm asking you to prayerfully consider a gift of Mm $250,000. That's right. Um,
0: That's right. Yeah. Man. Yeah,
1: that's great. And,
0: you know, I could have been, uh, you know, the president didn't make it difficult for me at all. He, you know, um, and and yet there is a little bit of that performance pressure if you're with yeah. somebody, you know, that you report to several layers yeah. down. Um, yeah, Yeah. But I had met this couple before in person on two other occasions. So I really wasn't nervous with them. Uh, But I did want it to go well so uh, because, yes, I had the the witness, and the partner of the president. But, of course, I (laughs) I liked that because it meant they knew the seriousness of the request and how important it was and how much we valued them as very grateful and active alumni. So all around a good experience, but, you know, there was that stumble, right, with the ask. So it's really important to rehearse. And while in that example, I mean, it's actually a good thing to have two people. Um, You you do have to be really accountable to each other and be really clear on kind of who's doing what part.
1: Is there a, could you talk about that a little bit more, like the role that bringing someone else along with you has played in, uh, in your time and major gifts, like, you know when, when would you have the president come with you how do you think that affected things uh are there ever times that you think it was a hindrance to have someone else there with you if I'll just stop talking there.
0: Sure, sure. Well, again, um, there are no universals because so many times, you know, we are as major gift officers on our own doing doing the visits, yeah. doing the asks. So I wouldn't say that it's always important to have another person on any ask. I do know for the, the very significant ones, capital campaigns and this kind of thing, especially if the the fundraisers or the executive directors aren't accustomed to asking for very large gifts. It can be helpful in that it, it, it just sometimes can give them a little peace of mind. They're not alone. There's somebody else there with them. Yeah. If they forget to say something, the other person might be able to remember it. There are two people that are kind of watching and learning and listening from the donors that they're talking to, and they can share notes afterward about, oh, I noticed when you talked about X and Y, they really perked up about that. And, oh, yeah, I hadn't yeah. noticed that. Um, and then yeah. also the accountability for actually making the ask, because if, if folks are not used to it, they can, they can just be intimidated by the whole opportunity and realize, no, no, now's not the time we ended up talking about this and we didn't get around to it and can't do it. That other person is there and you've got it. You've got to do it. You've got the proposal in hand. You're going to leave with them and you've got to make that ask. So,
1: yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, so this is something I was going to bring up when you were, So you were telling the story about, you know, you, you asked them for 250,000, but there was confusion. They thought it was 50,000. Did you have a written proposal with you that had the number 250,000 written on it? And if you did... What did you decide to do? That's, with that? That's such
0: a good question. Um, we did not. We did not have the two hundred thousand okay. okay. dollars written out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And but,
1: but did you have some? Did you have some sort of written proposal? It just didn't have a number on it, or you yes, didn't. Correct. Have we had a
0: proposal without a written number on it. Okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. And uh, um. so,
0: and so I guess in that case, I mean, because sometimes it's going to happen. You're going to have the proposal. You're going to have it pre-populated, and yeah. you know. <laughs> And then (laughs) if they don't give that amount, that's fine. They cross it out and write the number they want. You know, I'm sure you've done that. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, so it's funny. uh, I have done. So usually if I have a written proposal, it is. So I I tell people all the time, if you've never met with someone, you cannot decide how much you're going to ask them for before you meet with them, because you're going to ignore, like if you've never met with somebody and you've just decided I'm going to ask them for ten thousand dollars, no matter what. They might be giving you signals that they want—I don't know—something happened. I was going to give a million dollar gift to this, you know, pro-life organization, and something happened, and I don't want to give my money there. So I'm looking to—I'm looking to put it. I'm, I need to give that million to somebody this year, and I might give it to a few organizations. But you decided ten thousand was the number. You just ignored all the. That's an extreme example, but, sure. So. So most of the time, if I have a written proposal, it's with someone I've known for quite a while. Uh, I've already determined capacity, that kind of thing. So I've got a really good idea what I'm going to ask him for. But yes, if I if there is a little bit of confusion, I have brought several proposals with me (laughs) and they're they're in my jacket pocket and they've got different like they're sealed envelopes. But I know uh, through the order that I have them in, in my pocket or like some tiny little marking, I know what is in that one. So if I, so I might determine, you know, through this visit, they shared something that made me realize, okay, go with the, go with the top one. Uh, And I ask for that number and then I'll give them that proposal. So yeah, that, that has been my solution to the, uh, the problem, but could be, if you mess it up, could be very awkward.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you could be coming home with uh, more or less than what you thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh oh gosh.
1: Well, well, this has been an amazing conversation, Ellen. I love you've got so many great stories and uh, just so much success in your career. And I love, uh, yeah, I, I just love hearing, I just love hearing stories like that. It your the conversation we had today really just like re energizes me about what we get to do yes. as development professionals. And so thank you so much for sharing. Well, you're welcome. Is there any, any final, any final things you'd like to share with people out there? Well,
0: sure. I just want to say that if I've uh, learned anything, it's, it's through mistakes. I've made all the mistakes possible in fundraising, yeah. you know, from the early days, I thought you could raise a lot of money with direct mail, well, yeah, direct mail is important and you can raise money, but that's not the most efficient or best way to raise transformational gifts for your organization. I used to plan yeah. as many events as I possibly could. Oh my goodness. Not only did that not raise the money, <sighs> but it cost money in terms of staff, yes. opportunity and time and resources. Mm-hmm. And yet mission driven events can have their place. Uh, but when I when finally the light came on, uh, major gives fundraising, and that was always my favorite aspect of yeah. uh, fundraising at the Catholic Pro Life Committee because of the relationship building. Um, yeah. Then that that changed everything. So I'm always happy to promote that and talk about it. And I love the different guests that you have and the stories, Kevin, because we're very blessed to have had this career. It's it's deeply satisfying yes. and challenging, um, and exciting and wonderful.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on one visit away, Ellen, and look forward to talking soon.
0: All right. Thank you, Kevin. Take care.
1: That was Ellen Rossini from Mission Advancement Professionals. If you found this episode valuable, please subscribe to the show and leave a rating and review in Apple podcasts. If you'd like to stay up to date on the show, You can like One Visit Away on Facebook or connect with me, Kevin Fitzpatrick, on LinkedIn. If you really want to help the show grow, please personally share this episode with other development professionals. I hope you enjoyed Ellen's encouraging and entertaining words and are inspired to schedule more visits. After all, you're just one visit away from having to rush out of a restaurant filled with the aroma of fish or just maybe closing a six- or seven-figure gift for your organization.